As we turn to God's Word this morning in Luke chapter 16, verse 18, uh, if you want to actually have your bulletin in your hand just for a moment, uh, typically I pray this prayer, but I wanted you to join with me to pray for what we call the prayer of illumination, which is essentially asking God to open our eyes to see wonderful things out of His Word. And so would you join me? You'll see the under 688, the prayer for illumination, the bolded text. Let's pray it together as we come to God's Word. Father... What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Amen. With that prayer in mind, would you turn to Luke chapter 16, uh, verse 18. And let me read this one verse for us. I hear then the word of God, indeed the word of Jesus Christ. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is God's word for us this morning. Uh, You may be seated and keep that Bible open as we look together. Have you ever come up to um, a devastating car crash on the road? Uh, maybe maybe you just you drove past, you know, cars always slow down, a little bit cautious, a little bit curious, wondering what happened here when you see a semi turned over and you see multiple cars. Uh, as Christians, we tend to pray in those moments because we don't know uh, what's, what's happening and, and what it is. Or, or perhaps you've had a, even a more harrowing experience where in some way you stopped and, and you were in some way involved as you, as you come up uh, early on. You know, it's interesting, when you think of a, a devastating car crash like that, there's, there's so many good and important questions, like what caused this car crash? Or uh, was there a drunk driver involved? Or it, was there something in the design of the road that was not safe, that wasn't good, that needs to be addressed? Those are all really important questions. But when the car crash is happening, or after it has just happened, and the, and the first responders come, I think the most important thing is when you witness the first responder wrapping a child in a warm blanket, right? Those other questions are still important, but in the moment, in the devastation, the question is, how do we care for those that are here? As we come to this topic of divorce and Jesus' teaching of divorce, and we'll look at different passages in Scripture, we'll do some of that work of asking what causes divorce, or is divorce biblically permissible? If so, when? These are really important questions, but I don't want us to lose sight of the more important questions. What is Christ calling us to do? Who is he calling us to be as a church when it comes to ministering to those in our midst, both speaking the truth in love and upholding the Bible's teaching? You know, Jesus was, was tough in that sense. He didn't back down from, from preaching the truth. He was willing to preach and crowds leave. But that same Jesus was tender. And he was willing to minister to people right in the midst of our sin and brokenness of this world. We're called to do the same. And so as we approach this topic, let's keep that in mind. You'll see the point of the message this morning is that divorce must be exceptional. Divorce must be exceptional. We're going to argue that there are limited, very limited grounds for divorce in Scripture, uh, and limited by design, divorce must be rare, it must be exceptional among us, 
And to get to that point, we're going to look at three, uh, three uh, sub-points. We're going to look at uh, the grounds for divorce. We're going to look at the effects of divorce. And we're going to look at the meaning of marriage. So number one, uh, the grounds for divorce are limited. Uh, if you're following along in the bulletin, there are uh, fill-in uh, outlines for you. You'll also see a lot more notes in the bulletin than normal this week, uh, some further reading uh, materials for you. Um, a sermon like this is, is, is probably guaranteed to generate more questions than it answers. This is a big topic in Scripture. Um, and when, when a preacher gets up to preach, there's some teaching involved in laying out these different passages. But, uh, but my goal is by the end of the sermon that you would see Jesus and love him more as we preach Christ and him crucified. And so uh, one sermon is never comprehensive on any one topic. And so if this generates questions for you, I would love nothing more than you following up with me afterward or this week. I would love to dig into these passages more with you, your elders as well. So the grounds for divorce are limited. Uh, so let's, let's look. It, it, when you come to any passage, especially a difficult passage, um, you're asking a question, right? In real estate, what do they say? Uh, there's three things that are important about buying a house. Location, location, location. Also, like if the house like, stands up, I think that's important. But location is so important. When you're asking, what's the meaning of this passage? There's so many good answers to that question, but context Context, context is extremely important. Uh, the context determines in many ways, gives the parameters. So we need to ask, why is Jesus teaching right here in verse 18 about divorce? Um, and if you look at the context, remember, uh, Jesus has been speaking uh, to the Pharisees in verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard these things, ridiculed him. Jesus challenges their heart. God knows your hearts. What's exalted among men uh, is an abomination in the sight of God. The Pharisees, who should have been the teachers of Israel, who should have been upholding God's law, and it seemed as if they were in many ways, they were actually upholding the things that God hates uh, and not upholding the things that he loves. So that Jesus is willing to say in verse 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And so this is the context. He's, he's talking to these Pharisees who on the one hand, as we've said, were very legalistic. Very, you need to tithe this much, this often, and if you don't, you must not love God. So we think of Pharisees as legalists, uh, but they're also very uh, liberal in the sense of when it comes to things like divorce and remarriage. There were debates within rabbinical schools at the time, so it would vary by who the teacher might be. Uh, there would be some schools at this point who, who would be, you know, on the more, we'd say, conservative end of saying that, you know, there's very limited grounds for divorce, uh, debatable if there's remarriage, all the way to very liberal schools. Uh, there's one quote that says something like, you know, if, if your wife burns the soup, that's grounds for divorce. So that's like uh, the extreme over here. And, and you'll see, uh, you know, elsewhere, uh, when the Pharisees are asking Jesus about this, they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's a leading question. <laughs> uh, Jesus, can you affirm for us, what school are you in, right? Uh, which school do you adhere to of our rabbinical schools? And so this is the context. They're, they're playing f uh, fast and loose with God's word, and Jesus points this out. And I think verse 18, then, is just this poignant example uh, the law does not become void. You're playing fast and loose with it. Let's talk about divorce as an example. 
of how you're not applying God's word rightly, Pharisees, and therefore, as we've seen with a mirror, our own hearts. So that's the context, the immediate context of when we need to understand something like divorce, we want to, context is immediate. It's also more broad, like the book of Luke. It's also more broad, like the New Testament. It's also more broad, like all of God's word. Uh, So when you think of what does all of the Bible have to say about divorce, we're just saying what's the biblical context for this this teaching of Jesus. Um, And you'll see uh, in your your bulletin, I, I tried to list out sort of the key passages that you can look at later. You know, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, uh, and Mark 10 are very parallel in some ways. Uh, We have our Luke passage here. Uh, We have 1 Corinthians 7, uh, dealing with the unbeliever that leaves. Uh, And then in the Old Testament, we have Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, which Jesus himself deals with in those Matthew and Mark uh, passages. And we'll look at those as we look at these four different views the question arises, and we'll, we'll just spend a brief time on this, then if we're going to summarize biblical teaching, uh, what is the biblical view? Is divorce permissible? And if so, is remarriage permissible? There's tended to be four views. Uh, the first three, especially within those who love God's word uh, and, and seek to apply it rightly. So we're, as we say it, in some ways, this is an in-house debate, <laughs> um, the most sort of strict on this end uh, would be there's no divorce, no biblical divorce, then therefore no remarriage. Those kind of go hand in hand, right? And they would point to verses like Luke 16, 18. If all we had was Luke 16, 18, everyone who divorces and marries another commits adultery. It's, it's pretty clear. So they would point to Luke 16, 18 and say, look, there, there is no biblical grounds for divorce. Right, and uh, some who would hold this view actually, Roman Catholics hold this view uh, in a very different way. They view marriage as a sacrament. So we use that language about the Lord's Supper and about baptism. Uh, Roman Catholics view marriage as a sacrament, as this essential way that grace comes to us from from Christ. And so, actually, being very consistent, they say, well, if if it's that high of a view, in some ways, a very high view of marriage, um, if it's a, a sacrament, there's no such thing as divorce. That doesn't exist. Uh, but they will have something called an annulment, uh, which basically says this, this marriage was never legitimate, and so we could dissolve it as the church. Uh, but there are some Protestants who hold to this view as well, that they don't see any biblical ground for divorce and remarriage. Um, we would want to, to put our cards on the table here, uh, and myself, uh, view three is, is going to be the argument, but we would look certainly at Luke sixteen eighteen. but if if the Holy Spirit is, is the author of all of Scripture, and he doesn't contradict himself, then we take with Luke 16 18, Matthew uh, 5 and Matthew 19, where Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Or 1 Corinthians 7, when, it's, when it talks about the unbeliever who leaves. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, God has called you uh, to peace. And so we put Scripture together and say, there seems to be some sort of ground for a very limited uh, divorce uh, within God's people. And so that would be the strictest, no divorce, no remarriage. Uh, Maybe the the next, uh, uh, if you broaden it a little bit, uh, some would say there's limited grounds for divorce, usually adultery, as we see in those passages, uh, but there's no remarriage ever. 
to do so. And again, they point to Luke 16, 18, etc. Uh, but again, we would say, wait a minute, it seems to be when Jesus says, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, yeah, he seems to be saying if there's an unbiblical divorce, then, then to marry another, of course, is adultery because that first marriage never was dissolved, right? But if there is a very limited, legitimate grounds, then we come to verse 3, limited grounds for divorce, and therefore in those very limited cases, yes, remarriage is possible. That 1 Corinthians 7 passage, again, I think points to this. Uh, I'll return to that view, but let's just, let's just go all the way down the line here. The broadest view would be much broader grounds for divorce and therefore, of course, remarriage. Uh, you know, within this camp, you would have a spectrum all of its own, all the way from you know, pretty conservative, love the Bible uh, b- believers who just would say it's a little bit more broad than we think, all the way to you know, very liberal theologically to basically say, yeah, there's no, uh, there, there's no limits here on the church. Um, you know, you've probably heard of people in their wedding vows uh, saying, you know, it used to be until death do us part, it's uh, as long as we both shall love, right? And, and there are some professing Christians who would say, that's fine. So that would be the extreme. But what about uh, this view uh, that we see? If we're putting all these passages together, uh, let me summarize it for you from our, even our confessional standard, which is a helpful uh, summary Uh, Chapter 24 of our confession, it's actually page 862 in your Trinity hymnal, if you want to look that up now or later. Uh, But let me read this. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God has joined together in marriage, uh, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient for dissolving the bond of marriage. And so we have that view uh, summarized. Certainly, you may have questions about that. What about this? What about this? Um, I would encourage you to come talk to me, talk to your elders. Uh, But one question that often uh, comes up, uh, what about abuse? What about when one spouse is controlling, habitually harming, whether physically or sexually or otherwise, the other? Uh, Are we saying... Uh, that, the, that the Bible has nothing to say about that, or uh, that that marriage should stay together no matter what, or that that person should submit themselves to active abuse, uh, because that's what it takes to uphold a high view of marriage. We would say no. We're careful here. Uh, scripture, I think, is, is, is very limited in its language about grounds for divorce by design. Um, I think that uh, Jesus, in his wisdom, knows our tendency, right, um, if, if the doorway is open an inch, to sort of spread it open a mile. And so I think uh, this is meant to drive us to our knees. This is meant to drive us to church leaders in our church community to, by any means necessary, address these things. Uh, but it, in terms of abuse, I mean, there, we know of beautiful stories where um, a couple, um, one of them is, is habitually abusing the other, uh, they separate for a time, and, and the, the person who's abusing actually submits themselves to church leadership, submits themselves to ongoing counseling, and by God's grace, we see a change of heart, and that marriage is brought back together. But you see that that abuse is, is handled. It's, it, 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 of course, there's also devastating cases where the same happens or tries to happen, and the abusive spouse uh, even uses scriptures like this and says, no, you need to you know, submit to me no matter what. 
I'm not going to repent of these things. You know, I'm allowed to do this. And so it might get to the point where that abusive spouse uh, is uh, loving their sins so much, unrepenting of their sins so much, uh, that church discipline might even lead to the point of excommunication if, if, if they're even a church member. And so, we, and so we address these things, of course, pastorally. Um, and that doesn't mean that we're, we continue to uphold a high view of marriage, but the grounds for divorce are limited by design. Now, that's the first point that we want to look at. Uh, the second, uh, perhaps digging deeper, why would they be so limited by design? The second point is the effects of divorce are devastating. The effects of divorce are devastating. Uh, you see that here. Everyone who divorces, uh, you know, divorces outside of biblical grounds as we put Scripture together commits adultery. It's easy for that just to sort of roll off uh, our minds, but it, if you think about the Old Testament precedent, uh, what was the punishment for adultery in the Old Testament? It was death, right? Now, we know sin deserves death, right? So it, it, any sin ultimately deserves death. But in the Old Testament economy, in this brief time when, when God's people, it was a theocracy, uh, very visibly, if someone committed adultery, the punishment was death. And that, of course, raises some questions for us, but that points to the deadly seriousness of what we're talking about. In the New Testament, then, uh, there is no longer the death penalty uh, within the church uh, for adultery, but it still points to that spiritual death. And if you, and I know many, if you have experience in this area, whether your parents or you or anyone in your family, you know this to be true. And so whether the divorce was on those limited biblical grounds or whether it was a sinful action, either way, the effects are devastating. And so even as we look at these important questions, we, we must not forget those who are affected in the wake of this. One author puts it this way as he writes about his relationship with his father in the light of divorce. A reviewer for the New York Times Magazine called this book less a memoir than a speaking wound. Uh, the author's name is Greg. And when Greg was eight years old, when his father told him that he and Greg's mom were separating. The father and son were sitting on a bench in Central Park when the news was delivered. He writes this, I responded by making a snowball and letting it fly at a nearby pigeon. What I really wished was for the courage to hit my father with the snowball. Under the childhood anger my father expected and hoped to see was sadness born of losing the parent who understood me the best. At eight years old, I felt like a deep-sea diver cut off from my air supply. Some of you might resonate with that last line. Like a deep-sea diver, under the waves, cut off from the air supply. And we need to admit this is a product of this fallen world. No eight-year-old should have to navigate their affections toward two different parents and households. No eight-year-old should have to feel like they can't breathe. And perhaps that's some of your experience. And I'll say, I'm, I myself am no stranger, even in my own family. And I just want to invite you, and remind you first that, that Christ knows this wound that you've experienced. He's not surprised by what you've been through. 
He's not distant from you. Uh, He doesn't view you as unclean because of your experience. And he has grace sufficient for you even now. Uh, Even if that wound is still raw and you're experiencing it now, or even if that wound was 30 years ago and you wish it would just go away, his grace is sufficient for you. And church, I want to remind you, as even as we uphold a high view of marriage, we'll get there in just a moment, even as we uh, are tough, as, as Jesus is, when we teach about these things, uh, as we uh, teach about the very limited grounds for divorce and, and not wanting to see those floodgates open wide, and yet we need to be so careful how we speak to one another in the church. What does it look like when, when we want to uphold biblical truth and maybe even out of genuine concern and yet uh, you know, we're not called on a Sunday morning to just walk up to someone and say, but haven't you read your Bible? There's the rare case where a Christian or someone is going, or a Christian is going through divorce and, and they just say, I don't care what the word says, I'm going to do what I want. That happens, right? We're in a fallen world. Most of the time, if they're present, they're you know, part of the church, whether here or elsewhere, they know they've read their Bible. It doesn't mean that, that they're right in the moment. They might need to have the truth spoken in love to them, but we must speak the truth in love. <laughs> what does it look like to be as tough as Jesus and as tender as Jesus? Think of the woman at the well who came up to Jesus and, and, and speaks about her uh, husband not being her husband, and, and he says, you've spoken rightly. You've had many husbands, and the man that you're with now isn't your husband. Now, Jesus isn't condoning sinful behavior, and yet he's, uh, and, and the woman goes and, and tells the people, he, he told me everything I ever did. And so she's, she's convicted, and like we see elsewhere, you know, go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't play this game of, do I be tough or do I be tender? He speaks the truth in love, and he calls us to do the same. To speak that kind of tough love to someone requires relationship. Not every individual member of this church is called to walk up to any other individual member of this church and just lay into them on something. Uh, It requires relationship. It requires trust that's built up. And that takes time and intentionality. So what would it look like for us to speak the truth in, in love to one another, even in the wake of the devastation of divorce? And so we've seen the grounds for divorce are limited, by design, and we peeled deeper and said, well, the effects of divorce are devastating, and therefore divorce must be exceptional. One, one final reason, number three, is that the meaning of marriage is extraordinary. The meaning of marriage is extraordinary. Jesus is so strict when it comes to divorce because he is so expansive when it comes to his view of marriage and what it means. It's incredible. We could say many things, but let's just think of the depth and the breadth of the meaning of marriage. And and, and Ephesians 5 helps us on both counts. Think of the depth. Ephesians 5 quotes Genesis and says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This profound mystery of the one flesh union of man and wife in marriage, the depth of meaning here, God's design is, is wonderful. And, and yet Paul says the mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's, he's quoting Genesis and saying that refers to Christ and the church. 
In other words, every marriage, whether Christian or non-Christian, ultimately points to Christ and his bride. And Jesus loves his bride with a never-failing, never-ending love. And he is so jealous for his bride, so jealous for that marriage, the, the marriage with a capital M, that, that of course then uh, the limitations on, on divorce are great. And we see in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Have you ever been to a wedding and... and, and at least in our, in our culture, I think we've, we've captured it well. You know, the moment the bride is about to walk into the room, and typically the music shifts. Um, in my own wedding, you know, the, in that, when that moment happened, you know, the, uh, the bridesmaids were all holding strong, but uh, the groomsmen <laughs> were all weeping. Uh, as as my, one of my groomsmen said, you know, he, he cried one tear of, like, bullets and blood, um, but this moment when, when the bride, presented in splendor, prepared for that moment, this is what Jesus does for his bride. This is what Jesus does for, for his bride. He's the one who came and sought her. You know, we, we could talk about the work of Christ in so many ways, like, like the shepherd coming for the lost sheep. And the Bible gives us so many metaphors But what an amazing metaphor that the Bible actually ends on again, uh, the great wedding feast of the Lamb, that he truly came and sought his bride, established himself with her. All those who have faith in Jesus Christ are washed of their sins. The guilt is done away with. One day the, the very presence of sin will be done away with, and he makes them his own, and no one else. He says, you are mine. You are nobody else's, and I have no eye for another but for you. I came to seek you. Hosea puts it this way in the Old Testament. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And I will have mercy on her who I once called no mercy. And I will say to her who I called not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. We've talked about Jesus being both tough and tender. He speaks tenderly to his people. But as our great shepherd, as our great husband, he is tender with us and he is tough, but he is tough for us, wrapping his arms around us, providing for us, walking with you, even if you've been devastated by some of the things we've been talking about. This is who Christ is. He is jealous for you. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never uh, send you away. 
I have no eyes for another. This this is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, From heaven he came and sought us to make us his holy bride, his only bride. And with his own precious blood he bought us. And for our life, for our abundant life, he died. This is the expansive meaning of marriage in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, that it challenges us when it needs to. I pray that just as the clay is shaped by the potter, that you would shape your people. Lord, would you give us a deep understanding of the union that we have with Christ, of his coming to seek us and save us by his own blood and gathering us. I pray that you would make us a church able to care for those in so many different circumstances, whether those suffering or those who have sinned, uh, Lord, that we would find the grace we need in your throne of grace. Lord, help us. Uh, Be with us now as we continue in worship and as we fellowship together. May it glorify you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.